This episode is sponsored by Rode Microphones, presenting My Road Real, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit MyRoadReal.com to get your free starter pack. So it's my pleasure to talk with re-recording mixers John Taylor and Frank Montano about their work on The Fate of the Furious. So for both of you guys, have either of you worked, uh, I mean, any of you guys, you know, worked on any of the Fast and the Furious franchise? I feel like uh, you lose track. It's, this is number eight, but have either of you had a chance to uh, work on these? Yeah, this Frank Eek talking. Uh, I started on four. Okay. And I helped out on four, but really started on five. Okay. I had a chance to see the film last night, and being in an audience of people who have followed this franchise, this film, this storyline, it's like you forget all the characters that have come in, you know, come in and out of the story, and there's a, you know, like this long, incredible history that these guys have had. What is it like to be on, a, you know, a project like this and see kind of the different iterations? Of, you know, what are some of the similarities? What are the differences on on this title? You know, it is interesting watching them as we've been on them, watching the characters. Um, you know, the ones that stayed, but also still feeling for the ones that have gone, you know, um, the ones that have yeah. left the series, not just Paul Walker, but, um, you know, like Gal Gadot and uh, Sun Kane and the, uh, it's, it's still part of the family. So I love the evolution of, of the series in that sense, you know, and how they keep mm-hmm. bringing people on, but unfortunately some other people have to leave. But it's a it's a fun part of it, and it's yeah. watching the changes of that part. I think are really are fun to watch as we go through the episodes, through the through the films. Yeah, how do you guys describe being on a project like this? I mean, they've done eight of them, and they're incredibly successful. And this one is no different. I feel this one is doing incredible numbers at the box office. What is it like working on a project when there's anticipation, knowing that there's a lot of people who are really excited about seeing a film like this? How, how does that does that have any influence on any of how you guys approach a project like this? Well, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to perform under all circumstances, hours and, you know, late nights and weekends and personal things um, while we're locked on the stage. So I don't think uh, we're our worst, you know, our own worst critics (laughs) to a degree. So we just know what we're in for. um, And we just focus on being successful, having the film be successful. But, you know, it goes to the old, it's like if it if it does well, it's because of sound, honestly. But if it doesn't do well, it's somebody else's problem. So yeah, <laughs> we can try to talk people yeah. into that. But nobody's believing it though. <laughs> yeah, how early on did you guys connect with uh, director Gary Gray? You know, when was when did you find out he was going to be on the project, and what was your first kind of well, we had, finding out about yeah, it? Yeah, we had just uh, finished up Compton. That was this is my fourth. This is Frankie again, fourth film with Gary. Yeah. Um, and he just finished up Compton and it came out yep. really, you know, a short time after the completion of that film that he had landed. Yeah. So, and I mean, even at the, I mean, even that early on, did he have any idea of story or any of the environments or locations that it was going to go? No, I mean, personally, I was surprised when they, when it opened in Cuba, we got word of okay. Cuba. We got a little bit of a uh, little taste of VFX in Iceland but that's all I really knew about it. Okay. So I, I guess from the time of you finding out that you're that you're going to be working on this project and obviously they're in production, when do you guys first start getting your hands on material? What was kind of the workflow and, and timeline for, for you guys? Well, we come in, it's first, 
uh, you know, Peter Brown is Peter Brown and Mark Steckinger were the supervising sound editors on the film. So they were actually on pretty fairly early as far as making sure that they get the recordings, you know, of the new cars and, uh, you know, cover the, mm-hmm. the, the challenging scenes, the submarine and so forth. And um, mm-hmm. then what uh, a lot of times will happen as far as production goes, they'll send, they'll send us production early on so we can take a listen to it and, um, see how it's going and if there's going to be much, you know, ADR necessary or whatever. Um, but that's about it. We'll get snippets here and there until, until we either start pre-dubbing or start temp, temp dubbing. And on this one, we pre-dubbed. The first thing we did on this one was pre-dub and then we did a temp and then we went right into final. Yeah. We changed our, our workflow, um, because of the China delivery being so far in advance versus worldwide um, is we're able to prep the film and then deliver a preview mix turning into evolving into a, the China delivery and then ultimately the worldwide. So it was an interesting workflow worked well for us. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys, did you guys work in a, a native format or where did you start with your mix? Uh, well, it was an immersive format uh, start off with Dolby Atmos and then scaled it down mm-hmm. from there. Okay. And I mean, I guess having a chance to work on other films in, I mean, have you worked in a native from the beginning before? Yeah, we had just finished up a, the picture prior. We had just done that as well. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting um, just the way it's all managed. We, we manage it a little differently mm-hmm. than um, we kind of look at it from the perspective of bang for your buck. So mm-hmm. those scenes that really call out for it or lend themselves to it and that you can actually tell those are the things we attack mm-hmm. with it. I mean, how, how have you found that it translates when it comes down to the other 7151? Do you find that you're having to go back and make adjustments? Well, other base management? What are some of the other considerations for a film like this? Not really. I mean, because we do, um, we do uh, rendered outs. We do a separate sort of pass for every format. So, okay. yeah, we really don't have, and not only that, but whatever is in the objects that gets taken down to, um, you know, into the seven one, we have total control over it as we're doing the seven one. So, I must say that the Atmos does fold down really well, but we still have a separate pass for each format. Yeah, and how have you guys found that working uh, on a film like this, where I think there's a you know there's a lot of engine revs, there's a lot of tire screeches, there's a how, how do you keep variety? How do you keep <laughs> dynamics? And, and and also balancing you know your music track from uh, from Brian Tyler. Well, Brian had a ton of change. Brian had a ton of changes. Uh, pretty impressive, uh, just rhythms and time and orchestration and whatnot. So that was that was uh, challenging in itself. Uh, but as far as effects go, it it really they all take a each each sequence takes a, a life of its own. Um, for instance, Cuba was Toretto is in a struggling vehicle mechanically limited um so it had to have a character so it's a lot of see it hear it and and clearing and allowing other things to speak and have that kind of narrative throughout um so that's just kind of the recipe and then we have to change a few things here and there sonically to work better with music changes and whatnot then we will obviously but uh, it's just really season to taste yeah, and some of those scenes are definitely more difficult. I mean, the race scene in Cuba is 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 definitely about the race, you know, not really 
not really about the music. The um, the music is definitely more of a thread, and then it has its moments where it sort of prevails. But it's mostly about the race and keeping that energy going um, until you get to the finish line. And at the finish line, the music builds, you know, for that anticipation of who's going to cross the line first. So it always uh, it finds it finds its way. Let's put it that way. But Frankie has to do a, a lot of clearing, so we hear the music changes and we can follow it and um, and understand that you know it's. It's a piece of music, but it has a lot of different uh, speed changes, so to speak. So it, it it plays like the cars. So there's just a lot of give and take, you know. Um, later on in the film, Real Seven, that was the one. That was the scene that was just a little more uh, a little more trying as they're going across the the um, lake bed. Yeah, I mean, to me, I noticed the fact that you know sound kind of took precedent and and kind of led more i mean how much of that feedback is coming from gary how much is that is everyone agreeing how, how do you guys determine what to lead with vfx <laughs> uh well you know the yeah. first time I, I think maybe we both worked on a film that a submarine's chasing cars so that was interesting uh by itself so um but you know it's i think that that time in the film i think one of gary's main main concerns uh, concerns was to not wear out the audience. Okay. Yeah. To make sure it was still pleasurable and interesting, and still had this, uh, you know, storytelling and the narrative, um, but without being ear splitting nonstop. And that that included dialogue, music, and effects. Yeah. And I, I something too, like how, I used to, um, Paul uh, Rubel and Christian Wagner were the two film editors. What is it like? How much collaboration interaction do you have with them? How many edit changes were you guys going through? Were there VFX swap outs? Like, what's what is it like to work on a film like this where I feel like so much of uh, we, we were um, we changing? were begging not to make any picture changes. Yeah, it, it's it's constant change. I mean, you just know it's going to constantly change, and uh, the especially with the VFX, you know, coming and going. As far as the picture goes, it was it was pretty tight. Um, you know, they they brought it in pretty tight. But uh, there's always going to be a little, you know, little snips and stuff here and there, um, especially as as the picture changes. You know, the score gets done, you know, a month before we we start finaling. So as they as they start whittling down the score or the picture, the score has to match. So in some cases, you really can't get the score to sort of work with the picture. So they'll go through and they'll roll a cut or make a change to work to, you know, to uh, have it work with the score, basically, and um, so there's there's all sorts of different changes that happen as we go along. Yeah, and and, and Frank, how is it for you just having this history with Gary? I mean, what is what is it about your guys' collaboration and maybe shorthand? You know, what how do you even describe his understanding of you know you really leveraging your guys' ability and and sound and whatnot? Um, I think it just comes down to trust. Um, you know, we get we get that temp pass in. And that gives us education of, you know, what he's looking for. Uh, we just come off comp and, and that workflow is a little different uh, because of the live performances. Um, so he allowed us to do the first four reels of that film. Uh, it was kind of broken up in twos. It was live performances in the first half of the film and then all studio work after. Right. Um, so the build in the crowds and whatnot, he allowed us to work through those the first four reels of the film, play it back as a mini mini movie and do that with a back end. So we earned his trust on that and um, 
you know, the best compliment you can get is sound. I don't have to worry about the sound. I know it's being taken care of. So yeah. we, we worked from there and uh, we took his input as he came in and we showed him pieces. And, you know, we we're very tight at that point with VFX and color timing and final mixing. So he was spread pretty thin. Uh, so when we got him, we made a count and, you know, he gave us his thoughts and we implemented those. So it worked pretty well. Oh, what, what can you say about your production tracks? How much can you even salvage? I feel like a lot of these, there's a fair amount of green screen and a lot of kind of noisy environments. How do you guys even approach your dialogue track? What, what type of um, tracks are you getting? The tracks were good on this. I mean, uh, they, they, the production team did a really good job. Um, it was Whit Norris who's done, you know, a couple of these before. So he knows how to bring it. And uh, he knows that these actors are hard to get for ADR because they're all over the, you know, all over the world. So uh, he did a really good job. Um, some of the scenes were very difficult, especially in Cuba, just because of all the, you know, all the uh, all the sound that's on the island with all those people, you know, and all the cars and the birds and the wind in the ocean. And he did a really good job of capturing it. So, but like you said, in the car, it's usually green screen, and uh, where he brought great production there. So it was very good. Are they tend to just give you a single boom or how, how do they, do you know how they're covering those types of scenes? No, it's a, yeah, they do single boom. This is not a double boom, but a single boom. And he always has splits pretty much on everybody in the scene. So the, um, the labs are usually very good. And afford, I mean, we have to use a lot of them because these are multi-camera shots. Uh -huh. um, and you, as you know, when you're multi-camera shot, your boom is, out the window because it's you yeah. know, 100 feet away. So yeah. we really do we really rely on the labs, uh, um, you know, 90% of the time. Is, is there much uh, feedback or any kind of additional conversations that you're having with him when you guys are getting into these, or you pretty much are making your own decisions as you as you get into it? Oh yeah, no, I'll pretty much make his own decision. It's become it becomes very obvious, you know, quickly. Um, the the Dialogue editors are preparing everything, so all tracks are always cut and filled and um, cleaned as much as the dialogue editors can do. Um, and then we pretty much take it from there, and we spend, you know, three weeks going through the dialogue tracks in pre-dubs and, um, you know, picking the best choices and cleaning up as much as possible without sort of destroying the track, you know what I mean, or destroying the voice. Because especially when you're dealing with somebody like, Dominic Toretto, Vin Diesel, his voice is, <laughs> you know, it's a signature voice. So it's got to come through and that low end has to come through. So um, it's it's definitely trying at times. But uh, I think we've we've managed on this film as we have the previous. How, how, you were saying that, you know, a lot of, the, you know, being authentic to the new cars and the things that obviously these the audience is going to know what those cars might sound like or maybe assume. Right. But what kind of lengths is the design team going to, you know, go out and I mean, how many new recordings are these all new recordings that they were out and going and doing or library? Like, where, where do you go to get some of these cars? Um, you know, they're select. They're selected. Um, they're always trying to get everything, even during some of the additional photography that was done on the lot, whatever they can get from from water to car revs to door closes. It's all it's all available and they work real hard on getting as much of the original cars. Everything's augmented, of course, um, but all that material is available. And, they, you know, Peter and Mark Steckinger did a great job. Peter Brown and Mark Steckinger did a great, great job um, organizing it and, and gathering stuff. And Peter, 
they do a really cool thing is they, they, uh, you know, they video tape some of the sessions in the field. So it's always interesting to watch what they're doing and the crazy things that are going on on a tarmac out in the middle of California somewhere. <laughs> yeah, California City is where they usually go, and don't ever uh, let them use your car. Yeah, if you want it back. <laughs> yeah, if you want it back. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was gonna. I was wondering, like, you know, for even the the um, the set piece for New York. Yeah. How much of how much of that was real street, and how much of it was you know done in post? Um. Well, the harpoon stuff Kate, uh, was actually a, a really interesting shoot that Peter did. Uh, was with some cables and some skyrockets. Okay. And it was recording all the wire, t- the tensions and, and those things, uh, you know, physically. So all that stuff is fresh and new and, and uh, there's so much of it that you had to have a, a ton of variety to keep it interesting. When it got taut, when it got loose, a lot of storytelling happening on and off the break and who's pulling who and how they ultimately corner him and go into a, you know, a kind of a Moe Dick moment of capturing him and his escape. Um, so there was a lot of new material for that. And uh, it was, it was interesting. It was a lot of fun to, to mix some Atmos moments for sure. And um, we thought it came out pretty well. Yeah. And how do you find that you're, for a film like this, you're using a lot of your overhead channels and some of the other, kind of added the back wall some some more of the more of the corners and surround the pockets that you don't get in a 71 uh, what how do you like to use uh, the additional channels or the additional space in atmos um well we 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 take the mindset of doing your 71 correctly is as as immersive as anything in the market so that's the way we kind of handle it is the 71 is extremely immersive and oscillations are changing constantly a lot of movement inside that array, and then visually or sonically or you know emotionally, when it calls for something to physically fly over your head or move through that part of the array, um, we find the more simple, the better, more apparent it will be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Atmos is is huge, especially uh, you know like you're going going back to the uh, balance between music and effects. Um, I mean, ultimately, it has to work in seven one five one and two track also. But in Atmos, it's it's pretty nice, especially when there's choir or chorus that just gets to go on top, you know, and sort of sit on top of everything else to stand out without being so loud. And uh, that's that's what we've really found is that you know, in order to stop things from being loud, if we can separate it so it doesn't get so loud that you know that just sort of like takes you out of the movie. That's that's what we really like to use it for. Not just what the action's doing, but to expand the theater. What what type of tracks? What are you getting from Brian? What 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 is he delivering to you? And and you know how much control do you have? He loves percussion. He's a drummer. He loves guitars, and it's very yeah. percussive. And I imagine you're writing those throughout. He's he's uh, he's awesome because yeah, he gives it he gives it all. I have separation on absolutely everything. Um, the, it comes in tight. Greg Hayes is his mixer, and it comes in really tight and. Uh, he does a fantastic job bringing it in, but you know the stuff that uh, he records as far as the strings and uh, the horns; those are they bring to me five ones, and everything else is pretty much uh, left right. Um, okay. Because he's no, he, I'm going to spend the time with it, and that's what we're able to do is um, spend a lot of time with the music. Um, 
both of our stages match. The Hitchcock and Stage 6 match uh, as far as right. the consoles. So I can go and work on Stage 6 for half a day and then bring the automation and the material over to the Hitchcock and, um, you know, put it with the effects. And it just gives us a huge head start. So I'll probably... Um, you know, I can spend up to a day on music uh, for each reel yeah. just by itself. So having, you know, I don't know, 36 stereo pairs gives me a lot of room to move around. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and what, what were you guys finding? How was your Foley team? H- how does a Foley team work on a film like this? What are they focusing on? What are they providing you? Um, it was an interesting combination. Uh, Gary Hecker did the props. And uh, Dan O'Connell did the feet. So it was a little combination of things. And that also really, you know, kind of brought the uh, the best out of both teams. So it was really, you know, really tight, really well done, articulated uh, throughout the track, especially when we counted on some of the foot chasing at the end of reel five. And, and some of the intimacy really, you know, gives it gravity. So it was it was well done. Yeah, and what what was the uh, what's the backstory? I guess on this the submarine Arctic <laughs> setting. It's I mean, is it was that was that where was that shot? First of all, I mean, it, I, I couldn't quite tell if it was authentic, if it was real or not. I mean, it just felt like it could have been anywhere. That was in, in Russia. Russia, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what is you? That's I mean, story we're sticking to that. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Um, but, uh, so, what, what what's the evolution for for a you know for a section like that? For I mean that went on for I imagine for that whole how many reels is that whole scene? How what's the stretch of that? It was the last really thirty minutes. Yeah. Was like the last a lot of camera shake. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of snow dust and camera shake. Yeah. So um, I mean, yeah. How how does that scene evolve? Like, what it, are you seeing finished plates, or is it still kind of evolving I, throughout I the whole process? I think it's still happening right now. Yeah. 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 You know that one obviously. Um, because it was the end of the movie and it was so elaborate and scale wise, it was big. Um, you know, it was all the way down to the 11th hour of getting that material, um, all the way down to like JT was uh, mentioning earlier is even with sound effects, once the sync is sonically put in place, we'd have to manipulate, you know, Paul or Chris would manipulate the picture to match sync, um, sonically, the sonic sync. So. Um, you know, we, it came in late and we threw everything we had at it to make it interesting. <laughs> um, what would you say in terms of, you know, your guys' relationship, what is it about you two that really works for, you know, there's so much going on throughout and there's a lot, I mean, it just seems from one set piece to another, how do you guys manage? How do you break it up? How do you give it priorities or do you just take it as it comes in? As, as far as you mean, as far as each scene goes? Just in, in terms of structuring and scheduling your guys' workflow of determining, you know, how you can deliver this on time and make right. everyone happy. We, well, there's one one uh, mantra that we stick with is that there are 24 hours in a day. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so we have plenty of time. Yeah. So we try to stick to 12, but when 12 doesn't work, then we uh, we boost it up. Uh, no, we're listen. listen honestly, uh, all mixers, everybody that works on films, we all have to be conscious of what what time it is, you know, and how much time we have left, what's coming in, right. always trying to have an idea of, you know, of what our schedule is going to be. It's 
it's the things that we don't know about that are the most difficult. So it's, you know, when you're in a team and you have, I don't know, 30 people in the picture editorial room and you have 30 people on the, on the sound side, um, everybody talks and you just have this community of talking, um, you know, like, oh, did you hear they have to do this or that's not going to come in for two days later, you know, two days after we need it or we've got, you know, 300 visual effects and only five were approved. Um, you know, there's a new cut coming on this. So it really is just sort of a talking community and that's how we get the information. Um, you know, the post soup uh, is really good at it, but it usually is, you know, with the troops talking amongst themselves and by getting that information, we, we can tell how we have to sort of time everything out of if we don't, you know, we have to get done with real seven so we can go back to real one and start those 500 edits of conforms, you know, and how long before we even make that decision, it's like, how long is music going to need in order to conform the music to that? Or, you know, can they, um, and sound. And it's just, it's a constant, it's a constant, um, sort of, it's a balance, it's yeah. a balance and you're keeping those, you know, keeping those plates spinning. Uh, but our post post-production team starts with Frank Cuomo and, they're just solution-based. Greg McRitchie, it's a solution-based. Whatever we need, we get. And that's how we, we never compromise and, and we hope to be successful. Um, but it starts really there. We just have, you know, we're, they're just open to whatever we need and it makes it a heck of a lot easier to deal with a difficult situation when it's just solution-based. Did you guys also handle your, um, your, your near-field kind of home release mix also? Yeah, we've instituted that into our workflow as well. Um, and uh, on this particular film, um, it, it was a quick turnaround uh, of getting it done. So as soon as we finished worldwide, we kind of jumped into that. How long do you have to work on that? Um, on, on the you know, larger dynamic films, it's anywhere from three to four days. Um, and then some of the you know more dialogue-driven stuff is... Two to three days, not including the, not including the deliverables, like you know the the right Atmos DTSX and or all the theatrical masters, yeah, now. all the other, but including to those all the home near yeah. field masters, yeah, yeah, and and, and I guess are, are you guys also are you doing your own QCs? Are you listening through before you give them the stamp of approval, or oh, know, yeah. how far do you follow those? Yeah, all, all the way to the end, all the way through print check. At you know other locations, <laughs> so we see it a whole bunch of times. My my only experience was once on The Hobbit, which was not a short film, and so I can just imagine for a film like this that's over two hours, you know every sound, and every cue. Oh yeah, when we went to uh, they did um, Fast Open CinemaCon in Vegas uh, last week or the weekend before. And it's Frankie and I are like, all right, who's going? Because <laughs> one of us is going. Uh, we got to make sure that theater works. You know, we got to make sure the theater sounds good. And uh, this was a hand-built theater, as you know, in the Coliseum in the Caesar's Palace. Uh, that theater's only there for two weeks, and it's about 3,200 seats. So you just don't know what it's going to sound like. It's a full Atmos install. They, all the rigging is done. It's you know, it's a huge process. So, you know, one of us has to go. We got to give it a seal of approval. So, if a phone call comes and says, you know, it didn't sound right, we can we can answer that. <laughs> but of course, it went there. It sounded fantastic. It sounded really good. Really, really, really happy. 
So, but so who went? What we do on everything. JT yeah. drove. Yeah, I drove. <laughs> I drove. Uh, okay. <laughs> Drive my wife and said, we're going to spend the night in Vegas. Well, he was doing that. Then I was doing the, the near field for home use. All right. Yeah. Um, were there any other aspects of this project that you guys want to touch upon or any specifics that we didn't have a chance to cover? I want to go back to uh, to Gary, F. Gary Gray, who we absolutely love. My first movie was was Compton with him. And, um, you know, Gary is, he is into it, like, big time. So when he comes down, he's playing back, and he loves it. It's like, yes, hands up in the air, fist pumping, smacking us on the shoulder, you know. You got to be ready. Really happy. And then when it's bad, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, you know it's bad. And it's just, it's. It's a great way to work with him because you just want to you just want to see him happy. He spent a lot of time on on this film. He spent a lot of time, a lot of hours, um, you know, going through with all these you know huge actors. And uh, when he comes to the stage, we just and all with all directors, we want to make it easy for them. And uh, to have a director so like so uh, animated, animated, you know, on how he's feeling, it it it's easy in one way and very difficult in others. Was he with you the whole well, the whole time? Does he like to hang out and be on the stage with you throughout? He was pretty busy, so we get him when we can get him. So we give him a heads up of when we're going to play, you know, a whole reel back, and and then time it that way. It, it's sort of better to uh, you know because he obviously has his idea of what he wants his film to sound like. But if he sits there with us the whole time, you kind of lose your vision in a way, you know. So in, in many ways, it's better for us to sort of go through and be able to put all of the elements together um, and then get, right. you know, sort of give them a longer, a longer run, at least each reel, not just, a, you know, a couple feet at a time or whatever. I mean, it probably gives him also kind of a non-biased or neutral kind of perspective. He can just focus on what his director's eyes and ears are going towards and not hearing all those details that you guys probably are trying to smooth out before he hears it. Exactly. Yeah. We know it. We we have a track record, so we know his 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 likes to you know tendency to be make sure that the low frequency plays correctly, both in you know musically and effects wise, and and the storytelling is and first and foremost, and then yeah. of clarity to <laughs> yeah. all the all the storytelling. What what about the other the other music tracks, the ones that are not Brian Tyler, um, a lot of the other needle drop type of stuff? Are Good those songs. yeah. Are those yeah the songs are those set in stone or are those changing also? They're they're always changing. You know the uh, the music department here, Mike Noblock and gang. They really have it, it is tough to. They always want the freshest music. You know they want songs that aren't right. out yet that they know are going to be huge. Um, that's a really difficult thing to do. So as we as they're temping, you know, in the editorial room and they pick songs, and of course you get used to the song. Well, the studio always wants to make sure we have, have the most current. So, um, you know, it's constantly changing, constantly changing, and sometimes not changing for the better in the director's mind. So, it, you know, the director has to approve it. Um, it's just a lot to go through. The, the music department here on every movie uh, works, works very hard to keep as current as possible. And those are, those are all splits. So every song that we get, there's no two-track. It's all... It's all you know, they also make sure that we get, you know, the the drums separate from the guitars, the bass, the vocals, the backup vocals. You know, sometimes you'll have 60 tracks on one song. Mm. Are you finding that you're having to reference a stereo master or what, how do you know what to kind of guide or what is your, I guess, what is your guide for those? 
Yeah, definitely listen to the stereo master just to make sure that you're with the intent of the artist um, and try to keep that rule. But at the same time, make sure we're doing what's best for the movie. Some, uh, most of the time, it just works hand in hand. It's easy. You know, it's just like, oh, this, it was meant for this. So no problem. But every once in a while, you get to a thing where maybe they've done so much mastering that only their two track really reflects what they've, what they've got. And the split tracks are totally different. Um, you know, because usually when you master, you're only mastering to the two track. Right. That makes so sense. sometimes we'll run into a little bit of a problem to where it's like, you know, it's almost like we have to use the two track because it's so different. Yeah. I'll have to say be, being in the audience with a full, I mean, just a full room when people are cheering and like yelling at the screen and they're engaged in that way, it doesn't happen in like that many films, but a film like this, like it's kind of cool to be around that because it's just like people are so rooting for these characters. It was a lot of fun. I mean, obviously it's like this, it doesn't really let off the throttle that much. It kind of, it's like full throttle the whole way through. There's some, you know, quieter dialogue moments, but you guys really had your hands full. So, I mean, congratulations. Did you like the prison break? The prison break was uh, a fantastic one too. Yeah. That, <laughs> so yeah. good. Yeah. Frank and John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this film. I, I feel like it's incredible to see this film people know about it and yet like this franchise does so well and people love these films so much it's really cool to have a chance to uh, talk with you guys and find out more just kind of what you guys were up against but uh worked out really pretty well yeah it's cool. always Thank an you. honor to be part of it and uh hope to keep it going thanks again for tuning in listening to my chat with the sound team of the fate of the furious you can hear more conversations with sound designers composers and directors on the soundworks collection podcast on itunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, presenting My Road Real, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit myroadreel.com to get your free starter pack.